how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to Creative Principles. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. In this podcast, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, and more, where we'll be discussing the habits, routines, and methods of a creative life. This episode is brought to you by FreelancerClass.com. At FreelancerClass, you can learn how to become a freelancer full-time or part-time. The online course will teach you how to make money as a writer, marketer, graphic designer, virtual assistant, or an accountant from the comfort of your own home. Make a little extra money or replace your income at FreelancerClass.com. Michael Hurst talks about his love for historical fiction. He's best known for Vikings, the Tudors, Elizabeth, and Elizabeth the Golden Age. In this interview, he talks about the immersion of research, an open mind to the material, historical accuracy versus historical plausibility, and how poetry and footnotes can shape screenwriting. Vikings is currently in its fifth season on the History Channel. The only two things I could ever really do at school, uh, apart from sport, were English and history. So I sort of cleverly combined those for, uh, for a career. But um, in terms of um, in terms of writing uh, from historical uh, material, I think it has something to do with the fact that I was at university for a long time, uh, for about ten years in different universities and uh, so the uh, you know the initial uh, period of, of research and reading and thinking that goes into you know which is the way, way that uh, everything I do starts um, is a great joy is a, is a great pleasure to me and, and and out of the research out of the reading uh, start to come uh, ideas and storylines and characters and things they they evolve uh, and, and become real to me, and it's a process I enjoy very much. And uh, it reflects, um, I suppose, also on the fact that I think um, writing from real things, writing about real people, about real events, is frankly somewhat more significant than writing um, fancy or or, or sci-fi, you know, I think, of course, fantasy can be fantastically entertaining. But I do think that there is a value in addressing real things that have, and people who've influenced our world, the way we live now. Uh, and, 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 and so it's meaningful. It, 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 has, it, has a, it has a meaning beyond itself. So uh, th those are some possible answers to your question. What are some of the ways that you conduct research? Do you have notebooks, or how do you how do you get your ideas on paper and bring the history to fiction? Um, well, I suppose that um, I just uh, hoover up initially all the 
material I can get my hands on, all the historical accounts, all the history books, on the particular period um, I'm going to write about. And, and maybe also the music, you know, listen to the music of the time, if I can get hold of that, uh, read the poetry, immerse myself in, in, in the period. And, um, and at the same time, you know, start jotting uh, stray ideas <coughs> and thoughts down and, uh, uh, you know, with an open mind, uh, actually trying to allow... Uh, these the storylines to to evolve out of the material and not trying to impose myself too much on the uh, on the material. I think uh, the poet Dryden always compared the act of creativity to ideas and thoughts tumbling over each other in the darkness, and uh, that's kind of how I work or how I start. But uh, importantly, I also have uh, a historical advisor. Um, and, you know, if I come up with something, if I'm interested in something, if I've started to dig a bit more deeply into a character or a, a place or a storyline, I would ask Justin Pollard, my historical advisor, if he has more information. I mean, as far as Vikings is concerned, he's an expert in the Dark Ages, uh, if, if indeed such a thing is possible, but he, he's, he is an expert in the Dark Ages, so I run everything by him, uh, you know, and ask whether it's the way I'm taking the material, is it authentic, is it plausible, is it real? Uh, you can't always talk in terms of historical accuracy because, A, I'm not writing a documentary, and B, I often wonder whether there is such a thing as uh, historical accuracy, but certainly authenticity and plausibility and, and hopefully some truth are things that one is digging away for. And so after that, it's, 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 a, it's a, well, the whole thing, of course, is a process. I actually remember when I was writing um, Elizabeth, uh, the movie, um, that I started to jot my ideas down on a, a roll of, of wallpaper for some reason, or the back of a roll of wall, wallpaper, just in in a kind of stray way, I would I would just scribble down uh, the name of a piece of music or a poem or, or something that I've read. Uh, the footnotes in history books are, are often very rich material for me because there are things that historians uh, discard because they don't fit in with their thesis or they, 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 they that for one reason or another uh, is discarded in a footnote. But I trawl through the footnotes and often find incredible uh, tidbits and, and, and information about uh, characters and, and, and often, you know, weird and wonderful facts. And uh, so I was doing that about Elizabeth and it, got, it was like a, I don't know, an eight-foot-long <laughs> piece of paper. And as I was, as I'd been working on that for a few weeks or however long I, I did, uh, the the real story of Elizabeth began to appear. But I realised that what wasn't known about her was her earlier life uh, mm -hmm. before she became queen. You know, and and uh, and and some of the best anecdotes, some of the best poetry, some of the most emotion came out of that period of her life before she was iconic. So, um, and in fact, I gave 
that that strip of wallpaper eventually to one of the producers, so it's hanging up somewhere. But um, <laughs> it's a sort of chaotic uh, process, but organized chaos in some way. Is there a specific example in Elizabeth or in, in your more recent television work where the poetry or music that you've read has specifically shaped a character? Um, uh, well, there's, um, in Elizabeth, actually, a poet called uh, Thomas Wyatt actually got featured, and and, uh, and I used quite a bit of uh, his poetry in the... Uh, in the show, he'd been an ex-lover of Anne Boleyn, so he he had a, a kind of dramatic uh, right to be in the in the story. But it was useful that his poetry was was quoted, and also the Earl of Surrey, who was about the last noble that Henry VIII executed, was a very fine poet. And uh, you know, I kind of like, in some ways. Um, I like poetry anyway. I did a, an English, uh, a couple of English degrees, and I and I love poetry. I love the rhythms of, of, of the poetry, and I think when you're reading the poetry of the period, that it can help you to write uh, the dialogue. It can, uh, you know, um, that you're actually um, getting further embedded into the period and how people sounded. Um, and spoken the rhythms of their speech through through the poetry. So Wyatt and and um, and, and Surrey were uh, were uh, very instrumental. Just in the same way, in that uh, when I was writing Vikings, starting to think about Vikings and making my early jottings and notes and things. Of course, I was reading the sagas, um, and the sagas are kind of very weird and wonderful but they're brilliant and beautiful mm. and crazy and they of course they're all about the gods and uh, uh, the, the, the relationship between gods and humans and again in some ways out of the, the sagas and the rhythm that the, the sagas were, were, are written in and were written in I got more of the rhythm of Viking life the, the rhythm of how uh, Vikings possibly sounded when they talked I, I could begin to hear their I could begin to hear their voices um, and at the same time I, I, I have to admit that I don't only as it were quote from or reference poets of the period I also slip in some favorite quotes from poets in different periods mm-hmm. um, I think I did use some uh, T.S. Eliot, some of T.S. Eliot's four quartets in Vikings that King Egbert <laughs> of, uh, of, of Wessex actually quotes a few lines of the four quartets. Now, the reason I thought I could do that was uh, because the lines themselves are about time mm-hmm. and uh, Eliot's great belief that time past and time future are both perhaps contained in time present. And I thought that that was really what I was talking about in the show and, and my idea of, of connecting uh, past and uh, and the present and, and perhaps the future. Um, and uh, the other point about that was that Linus Roach, who, who, who plays Egbert, uh, Elliot was a, f- a favorite poet of his as well, and 
I just sketched in these lines um, for a, a scene between Linus, between Eckbert and Ragnar. And I, I would say to him, you know, you know, I can't obviously use these lines because it's a 20th century uh, poet and you're a 9th century uh, English ruler, but this is what I'm trying to say, and I'll have to you know, say it in a different way. But every time I tried to rewrite those lines, of course, I couldn't do better. Everything sounded very stale and, and, and poor compared to, to Eliot's lines. So finally, I left them... I left them in, and uh, and I thought, oh, you know, people will pick up on this, and they'll say, what the hell is going on? And you know, he's gone crazy. In fact, nobody picked up on it until I mentioned it in an interview, and then someone got in touch with, I think, the head of English studies at Harvard, uh, professor, and uh, and said, is was this true? And and the professor wrote back to him and cc'd me and said. Yes, it's true. This is a quote from uh, Four Quartets. This is the actual uh, quote. But looking at it, I can see exactly why Michael uh, used it. And I think it's very appropriate, and I think it's very cool. So, <laughs> so you know, that was fine. Mm. Um, outside of the arts, a lot of your work also revolves around the clash of religious ideas. Can you talk a little bit about how that shapes your characters um, in the series as well? Uh, yeah, well, it's very important to me as a person and um, uh, and as a writer. And uh, uh, I guess that um, I've always been interested in, in, in spiritual things, but uh, I, I always had a complex reaction to, to organized religion, and I'm feel that I'm searching, but I'm, I'm very sure that the spiritual aspect of life has to be part of the human experience in, in, in any character you you write about. And so it, I don't know, it may be slightly um, by default that these religious issues become very important in my work, but I didn't consciously choose to to do that except in Vikings when um, in my research and readings of course the pagan versus Christian conflict was was, was very much a center of, of Viking and Christian uh, Saxon life at the times it, it, it couldn't be avoided so it had to be addressed and I loved uh, reading about the, the, the Viking gods and I, and I and I couldn't have written Vikings, actually, without a large part of the story being about uh, pagan belief. And so the clash between uh, the pagan gods and the Christian gods, which ultimately the Christian gods uh, won, uh, essentially. But with Elizabeth and with Tudors, um, you know, I found, found myself writing about um, the Reformation, the clash, uh, obviously mainly in England between Protestantism and Catholicism, and being fascinated by it, and realizing, for example, that in England it was not talked about very much, but it was generally seen as inappropriate to talk about, for example, write about the Reformation um, uh, from the Catholic point of view. 
in other words, uh, Henry VIII's uh, propagandist minister, Cromwell, and others like him did a wonderful job of uh, when Henry broke with the Church of Rome, broke with Catholicism. Um, there was a huge effort to, you know, paint Catholicism as corrupt, evil. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, and in England, uh, that propaganda certainly worked. And I think in season three of Tudors, I wrote about, I found out something that I should have known because I come from the place where it happened. There was something called the Pilgrimage of Grace, mm -hmm. which was a Catholic revolt against uh, Henry VIII's policies of destroying the monasteries and destroying Catholic churches and Catholic relics and the religion and faith of, you know, thousands of years and thousands of, of people. So there was an amazing march, and I come from uh, Yorkshire, from York, where the march started, and uh, it was a huge event, and, and, and thousands of people marched through Yorkshire and started to march on London to confront Henry, and uh, he dealt with it in a very merciless, merciless way. But I realized that I had never seen that dramatized before. I realized that no one ever had tried to tell the story from a Catholic point of view because, of course, we've been taught in England that the Reformation was a good thing, that Protestantism, the destruction of Catholicism and the rise of Protestantism was a good thing because it led to, you know, the glorious reign of Elizabeth I, it led to Shakespeare, it led to the Golden Age. It was, it was an, you know, an unmitigated success and everything. So... Um, you know, out of religious quarrels and spiritual things can also come, um, you know, social and political uh, truths and and uh, and events. And uh, so, yeah, but for me, it's 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 uh, it's very basic to the way I approach historical uh, material. There's less recorded information about the Vikings, and the Vikings have been viewed as, you know, horrific for all these years. Um, how do you mm. fill in the gaps between the pages when you don't have something there? And uh, I guess you can elaborate a little bit more about uh, plausible versus accurate and how you kind of fill in those gaps of what's missing in history. Uh, well, well, the first thing I suppose to 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 recognize is that, that by and large, except for some accounts by Arab traders and, and others who came into contact with the Vikings. Most of what we know about them was written down by their enemies, that is to say by uh, Christian monks in, uh, in England and in France and, and, and elsewhere, uh, who, of course, um, uh, had very good reason to uh, denigrate and, and, and abuse uh, the, the pagan, the Vikings' pagan gods and their uh, habits and their, their behavior and so forth. So we have a very warped idea about uh, Vikings. And as soon as I started to, to do even a little bit of research, I realized there were so many things that all I'd got 
received in my life, like most people, was a completely cliched uh, received opinion of, of the Vikings. As you say, they were always the other. They were always the sort of dark force of the people who come and break down your door at night and rape your wife and steal your your treasure. And, um, in fact, I never knew, you know, that, that for example, that women were treated as equals in Viking society, that they could own property, divorce their husbands and rule, and they fought with their husbands and sons together, and that it was a much more democratic society. And, and there were lots of, 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 of things. As far as um, the fact that, yes, it is the Dark Ages, so there is a, a very limited amount that we actually know. Nevertheless, we do know uh, quite a bit. And uh, so figures like uh, Ragnar come out of myth and legends and the sagas and, and, uh, and so on. But the sons of, of Ragnar come out of history that uh, they were written about by uh, Saxon chroniclers and and people, and but all, all that was the, the the thing that was most important to me was once these, their story I knew a little bit about their storylines. I uh, they had become my central characters. I was interested in them. I knew basically where they interacted with Saxons, how they interacted, and what the results usually were. But in terms of individual storylines. Of course, I had, I'm a writer, you know, I, I, I have to condense, I have to imagine, I have to make sense, uh, I have to shape. Writing is, of course, essentially about shaping. So um, uh, I would start uh, nearly always with something that I knew or, you know, what passes for historical fact. And then I would develop storylines out of that. And um, and once more, then after I developed storylines, I would run that past Justin and ask him if it felt uh, to him, with his background, his research, if it felt authentic, if it was reasonable for me to suppose those things, if it said anything interesting and plausible about Viking uh, behaviour in society. And uh, I also have a friend who's an Icelandic novelist uh, who's. Uh, who also, of course, loves Vikings and, and and the sagas, and I send information to him. We share information. And, and one of the things that makes me extremely proud is actually that Vikings, I mean, it's now it's big across the world, but it's huge in Scandinavia, mm-hmm. um, in every Scandinavian country. And, uh, in fact, I had a radio interview um, years ago now but when we just we'd made the first season we sent the first three episodes to the head of scandinavian studies at i think harvard who's uh, a swedish professor and i went on a radio program to discuss my you know version of vikings with him and of course i thought i would be chewed up alive i assumed (laughs) that you know, he would be quite upset and dismayed and, and dismissive. And what he actually said was that this is the first time my culture has ever been taken seriously and intelligently. So, you know, I was thrilled, of course, with that. And I also went recently to the ship museum in Oslo, the Viking ship museum in Oslo. I had a, 
a, a private little tour, and the curator said, I just wanted to say thank you, because because of Vikings, twice as many people now come into our museum. Wow. And across across Norway, across, as far as I know, the whole of Scandinavia, there is a huge and renewed interest in our own heritage. A lot more uh, archaeological digs are, go, are going on, and uh, it's rejuvenated uh, our interest in our own past and our own culture. So, you know, I, I was attacked uh, quite a lot about um, Tudors, um, partly because Henry VIII is such an iconic figure and, and you're not really supposed to uh, kind of show him in any other way than he, mm-hmm. he's normally shown. Um and because certain historians are very self-serving, but never mind. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, the the fact is that it's been totally different with with Vikings. That it's it's had a, a great response from historians. I mean, from teachers, from intellectuals, from um, uh, you know people who know about uh, the period. So uh, that's been that's been fantastic. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. Before you leave, don't forget to sign up for the newsletter to get your free download of the ebook How Hollywood Screenwriters Annihilate Writer's Block, which includes advice from writers such as Aaron Sorkin, William Monahan, and Carrie Fukunaga. The newsletter will also keep you up to date on future episodes, new articles, and more. Sign up at brockswinson.com. B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N dot com.